Pastor Corey here with Heights Church. Thank you for listening to our sermon podcast. If you would like more information about Heights Church, simply go to weareheights.org or follow us on our Facebook page. If you're looking to get plugged into a church, feel free to reach out to us via our website by simply clicking contact, and we will help you find a similar church in your area. Hope the podcast serves you well, and thanks for tuning in. church family. How are we doing? You brave the cold, yes? <clears throat> I'm still wrestling with a little bit of this, this cold that's going around. We had a, our family got smoked with influenza A this last week, so that was a lot of fun. Uh, four kids, I think we just kept ping-ponging, like passing around the house, and so I uh, still have this lingering cough. I think they're, some people are calling it a 100-day cough, so if you have it, just kind of settle in. Apparently, we're going to be here together until March, so that's fun. Uh, my name is Corey. I'm one of the pastors on staff. Get to be your teaching pastor for today if you're new, and welcome to Heights. Uh, I'm excited. I am excited to get to be here, although my voice doesn't necessarily sound like it, but if you're new, you've never heard me talk before, and you don't know any different anyway. So um, we've kicked off uh, this year, New Year, with a new series. We tend to do this, uh, and it's a vision series, and so we kind of kicked it off with uh, what we're calling more of the same. Uh, and then in two weeks, we'll start Nehemiah, and we'll spend about 16 weeks uh, in the book of Nehemiah, and we'll kind of look at like the, there's a lot in there, especially for an election year, a lot of like geopolitical stuff that we're going to get into a little bit there and kind of talk about uh, them and their authorities, their political figures and some of that. And then ultimately, uh, we're not going to preach a side of the aisle. You already know this. We're going to preach Jesus, and we're going to talk about how Jesus is seen uh, in the gospel and then all throughout uh, Nehemiah, but it will be a good time. I've had people say, hey, pastor, you can't mix politics and religion. I would say, then just don't read the Bible <laughs> because it's all over that thing. It's, there's always an authority trying to stop the church from advancing the gospel, yeah? And so we're gonna get in uh, to some of that, some of what Nehemiah is, uh, and so it'll be fun. I asked, I think a few weeks ago, how many of y'all had said in a teaching on Nehemiah and no one had raised their hand? Uh, I've also never taught it, and so who knows what's gonna happen? It's gonna be great. We'll see what the Lord does for us. And so that's coming in a couple weeks. Uh, this year, as we've been talking about, marks 10 years uh, of faithful ministry to the San Luis Metro East and beyond for us uh, as a church family, which is super exciting. And uh, as we've been talking about, as a lot of people ask, like, hey, what do you attribute uh, to the growth of Heights? And so we're pretty upfront. We're like, well, Jesus is the head of this thing. Uh, we do try to preach the gospel faithfully, for sure, and we teach straight through books of the Bible for the most part, and, and then they're like, no, 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 like, what's your marketing campaign? And we're like, we don't do that. We actually, when we started Heights, we went two years without any signage, if you've been here that long, because I told people if we were actually doing the thing God had called us to do, folks would come, and if we weren't doing the things that God had called us to do, then a sign ain't going to help anyway, so there's no need to even have a sign, right? And so, people, people, so we get all these questions now that we're kind of a little bit bigger, and we've been at it for a while. And we always just tell them the same thing. And they're always like, well, give us something more practical. And this has happened a lot over the last 18 months. And so I've just been telling pastors and leaders kind of all over the place, just remain faithful. Just remain faithful to the gospel. Like if you believe as you preach that God is sovereign and God's in control and he's a very, very specific God and he's called a very specific people to a very specific place to reach his people or to see people come to faith, then just be faithful to what he's called you to. You don't need to go out and look at the next sexy thing that someone's doing or go read all the Pew statistics and trying to figure out what's hot in the culture. Just trust the Lord and be faithful with what he's called you to. What's he called us to? To preach the gospel, 
to remain faithful to the scriptures, to learn how to be in community, to learn what it means to live on mission for us specifically in the St. Louis metro area, right? And so we just tell them, remain faithful. Here's where a lot of that comes from, man. So when we planted Heights 10 years ago, uh, we did something that was called preview services. You guys ever heard, have you ever been to a preview gathering for a church plant before? No, just a couple of you. Were any of you at our preview gathering 10 years ago? Miss Debbie was in there. Yeah, I saw a picture of you guys. Yeah, 10 years ago. <laughs> Time changes us a little bit, doesn't it? Yeah. I saw myself too. And I was like, ooh. <laughs> like, I had long hair. It was awesome, dude. Uh, who else? Anybody else? Sorry, I got just sidetracked a little stage left over here. Anybody else over here? Sweet. And so we did uh, what we call preview gatherings. Uh, now, what you might not realize is that we actually started missional communities first. And so we wanted that to be the heartbeat of our church. That's why we talk a lot about missional community and we say it's the primary way that we make disciples here because it is. This hour and a half is great, but it's not enough. It's just not enough for you. It's, it's beautiful. It's spiritual. Holy Spirit shows up and does a work. It's still not enough. We've been called to community. And so we started missional communities first, and then we added these, what we call preview gatherings. And they were fun and messy. And we started with seven people initially, and then we had to have 40 to have our first preview gathering. And we hit 40, then we hit 60, and then we hit 80, then we hit 100. And I was like, man, the Lord made me a church planter. Let's go. This isn't as bad as everyone said. We launched with like 110 people. And I was like, holy smokes, average church attendance in Collinsville is 40. Let's Go, we're getting it done. Two weeks later was Easter Sunday, right? That's like when everybody shows up, you know, like everyone in the world shows up. They call those CEOs, Christmas, Easter, and occasional holidays. They just, everybody comes out the woodwork. We had 12 people at church on Easter, right? You don't even have to be a Christian room. You're like, oh, dang, you know, that, didn't, that is not what that man wanted, you know? So we had 12 people that showed up on an Easter Sunday for us for shared space with Pleasant Ridge Baptist. Well, you might have been one of the 12. And um, if you were there, you remember. Of 12 people now, you got uh, somebody's running sound, somebody's running slides. You have four people on stage, kind of like what we just had today. You have me on stage about to preach, which meant then there was only about four people in the congregation on Easter Sunday. And so I got up, man, and I, I'm, you know, I've shared this story a couple times throughout the years, obviously. But I get up, man, with tears, literal tears in my eyes. And I'm like, I'm a failure. I have effectively failed. Like, what was God thinking? I've quit my job. I've raised this money. I, 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 who's that about? I've done all these things. What have you done? You know, it's like I get up as the planting pastor, mad. I'm upset. I'm embarrassed. I feel like a failure. And the Lord, like, just very sweetly kind of spoke to me through the spirit. Um, we're not so reformed that we think the spirit doesn't speak, yeah? And so the Lord just very sweetly said to me, if it were me and you, would the gospel be enough? If it were just us, would it be enough for you? And even now, like, kind of makes me emotional. I already sound all messy anyway, you can't tell, but I, was, I had to just be like, yeah, it's enough. Like, if all I had is, is this word and your good news, and it was just me in the room, it would sustain me. What was he calling me to in that moment? gospel faithfulness. Just be faithful to the good. It doesn't matter who's here. Be faithful to the good. It doesn't matter how big you get, how small you are. Big church doesn't mean you're healthy. Small church doesn't mean you're unhealthy. Are you faithful to the gospel? That's what matters. The second thing that he said that was very clear was stick to the gospel and stick to the vision. How many times have you guys heard me say this over 10 years now? Stick to the gospel, stick to the vision. And he meant it in that order. I stick to the gospel first, not the vision, not this new thing, not whatever's going to attract people, not because the gospel isn't always attractive, is it? It's attractive to us, but it's not always attractive to everyone. Stick to the gospel and stick to the vision. And in that moment, 
what I realized in that moment was we had just had 40 people in our missional communities, 10 of which, to my knowledge, were not even Christians. They're just hanging out with us as we're living on mission with them, which is kind of what you want. 30 Christians, 10 non-believers. That's a pretty good launch team, isn't it? And so we have 10, 40 people in missional community. We had 12 total people in the church. And that has been our rhythm as a church from that day forward. That was the vision that God set, that we would, that we would, man, that we would do the best that we could to preach the gospel and liturgy and song and the presentation of the gospel like this right now. And then we would push heavy for people to actually take that gospel, learn what it means to be in community, and then learn what it means to live on mission in the St. Louis Metro East. And our vision has always been that we would have more people in missional communities than we have on a Sunday morning. So even before we came into this space, this is only the second time in the life of our church where the numbers have switched. When we come in in this space, we were gathering 350 people, 330 people on a weekend, but we had over 400 people in homes throughout the year, uh, throughout the week, hearing the gospel, responding to the gospel, being pushed to live on mission. This is the first time that that switched because we got a new building, and with a new building comes more people, we understand. And so here's my plea to you as part of a vision series. If you're planning this year, first of the year now, if you're planning this year to remain in Heights Community and call us family, I want you to also remain, if you're going to remain, if you're going to stay, I want to also, also then invite you to submit to the same vision that God gave us 10 years ago, the same vision that I had to stand on stage and believe for myself, and then to get to look out across the pandemic and across 10 years now of faithful ministry and go, that vision works. Whenever literal all hell breaks loose in society, that works because the Lord sustained us in the midst of COVID, didn't he? Like, in unbelievably miraculous ways, we were sustained. We did unbelievable things by God's grace. And so here at the first of the year, the point that I'm trying to make is, is really a question. It's this, if you're gonna call Heights home, will you consider stepping into the vision God gave us? Because it's not just rebelling against the pastors and that. It's not just some program we put together. It is the way that God has called us to specifically live on mission as this church family. Does that make sense for you? Okay, would you join me then just in remaining faithful? to the gospel and to the call that God gave us. And so the big idea is, is this. Uh, the gospel call is to remain faithful. Same big idea for the last uh, three weeks. And so my voice is fleeting. It's failing me. <clears throat> so I'm gonna need you to like encourage me a little bit along the way, all right? That way we're not here till two o'clock. Sound good, Mark? All right, thank you. Got it. Thank you so much. That's it. I know the spirit has it. I just, in my mouthpiece. Uh, three points for you per usual. Uh, gospel, gospel faithfulness and community. Uh, gospel faithfulness in conversation, and gospel faithfulness uh, as Christians. Gospel faithfulness in community, conversation, as Christians, feeling super Baptist when I wrote this. Yeah. A little alliteration for you. If I could throw a poem in at the end, we'd be good to go. Gospel faithfulness in community. As Jess Loftus would say, if you're ready, say ready. All right. Starting with verse 21. We're going to hit it straight through. Verse 21. Uh, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believe, believed turned to the Lord. And so uh, let me refresh your memory, especially if you're new, some guests uh, in the house today. We're in the book of Acts, looking at chapter 11, specifically looking at the church at Antioch. Man, and it's an unbelievable reality of what has taken place uh, in Antioch. It would have been an incredible uh, experience. And so let me just remind you of a couple things here. Uh, Antioch was five square miles, kind of big, and, 
in effect there. Uh, and within those five square miles, there's a ton of affluency, a ton of diversity. It was a very, very dense urban culture, okay? But at the same time, what you gotta know is that while there was all this affluency and diversity and it was very dense and people were just kind of toppled over on one another, uh, architecturally speaking, Antioch was designed with segregation in mind. And so whenever you hear affluency and diverse, you kind of read that with the 21st century worldview and you go, oh yeah, okay, kind of look like an airport. There's all these different ethnicities running around there. And that's not what it would have looked like. It was built literally from an architectural standpoint to be segregated. So there were these big walls that separated and segregated uh, Antioch. And so you have these Jewish men, they roll up in Antioch. It's five square miles wide. It's physically very, very dirty. Not to mention, is it physically very, very dirty? It was also what's considered by the Jews to be spiritually unclean. And so the Jews believe that if you were to engage with someone that did not believe like you, think like you, follow the law like you, if you were to engage with them, let alone heaven forbid, actually be touched by one of those unclean individuals, he or she actually made you unclean. And so then for the Jewish mindset, the Jewish mentality was, I'm going to keep the law. I'm going to be very, very religious. And in so doing, then my relationship with God would be sustained because of my hard work and because of my effort. But the very moment now you step into like unclean, what's called Gentile territory, like Antioch, like to step onto the property line made you unclean, let alone to be touched by one of those foul, disgusting Antiochs, you know, like. And so then the moment you're touched, all of your hard work, like all of your legalism, all your religion, all your morality is boom, it's out the window. And then they got to step into this whole Jew, uh, Jewish ceremonial cleansing. Wouldn't that be a terrible life to have to live? Everything based on you and your works. And so Antioch is that. It is spiritually unclean for the Jew. It's literally physically unclean. Within those five square miles, uh, you had about 200 people per acre that lived in that space. And so if you look at our footprint at Heights Community, we're out here, we're set on eight acres of land. So that means probably you guys, about 200 of you, 200 of you would live on one acre of land, plus your house that you would live on, plus your business that you own, plus your chicken coop. And also, Pastor Dave is not here, he loves this, there's no sewage system. Okay, and so you have your open-toed sandals, right? And you're just kind of stepping through everything. Thank you for the face. You're stepping through like everything. It's just, just picture with me, just if you just shooting through your toes. You know what I mean? That's what's happened. Very Colorado, very crunchy. It's great. And so that's what Antioch was like. And so whenever these Jews roll up in there, keep in mind now, they don't roll up in there because they're like, oh my gosh, we love Jesus. We want you to love Jesus. Their best friend had just been murdered. And so their friend dies, which then forces them outside of the territory they're in, forces them outside of their comfort zone into this place called Antioch. They are Jewish Christians, and so they begin to share the gospel, and the text says, and the hand of the Lord uh, was with them. They step out from underneath self, the idol of self-preservation, which is what I talked about two weeks ago before I got sick, and they step into this territory that no Jew would have ever wanted to walk into. Now, hear me say this now. They don't just go to Antioch. They're not like on the fringes of Antioch. The Lord sends them by his grace into Antioch, like into the city center of Antioch where all of those 
uh, people live. And as a result, the gospel is proclaimed. And something happens now that has never happened in the history of humanity. We'll talk about it more in a minute. But what happens is not just cross-cultural mission where I'm Jewish and I'm going to go talk to someone who's not Jewish about Jesus, but cross-cultural worship begins to happen. And the literal walls of Antioch begin to come down. This is the first, listen to me, this is the first time in human history that anything like this has literally ever happened in the world. And so it's no longer just Asians and Africans and Eastern Islanders and Jews, and they're all segregated for the first time. This is where I wish I was like a better community. I'm just praying the Holy Spirit makes this make sense. For the first time in human history, you now have Jews coming alongside Asians and going, hey, we can worship the same God. And Jews coming alongside Africans and Asians and going, hey, you can respectfully, your culture can look the way your culture looks, but we can worship the same God together. And that was the first time in human history now that that had ever happened. Sure, there's time, there's pockets where like Jews would hit a pagan territory in the New Testament, but then they dip out and they go right back to their little safe haven, their little subdivision where nothing bad happens until the Lord sends them back out and then they come back like boomerangs in and out. And so here's what happens in verse 22. That's your recap for you. Verse 22 then says this, the report of this, literally everything I just said, came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. This is the Christian Jews in Jerusalem. Uh, and they sent a guy named Barnabas to Antioch. When he came, he saw, listen, he saw the grace of God and he was glad. Okay, so now these Jewish Christians, they hear what is happening. Uh, they send this guy named Barnabas to go and then to encourage the church. Barnabas literally means the encourager. So he's entering into this church of Antioch. And Barnabas now, if you know anything about your Bible, he begins in chapter four. If you're taking uh, notes, take notes, because I don't know that this is going to be streamed. And so take notes. Uh, he began, he kind of shows up in Acts chapter four. Uh, he's a sold a field. He's contributed all the money to the mission of God. And then he's actually, his name is Joseph. And then the apostles change his name to Barnabas, which means the encourager. And then if we were to read chapter four, which it'll say here in chapter 11, Barnabas is a faithful man. And Barnabas is full of the Holy Spirit. He's full of faith. He's very generous. He's very giving. He cares about the mission. And so in that, it, we can kind of stop here for a moment of conviction together. I'll start with the men. Men, what would the people in your community say about you if they had to write your obituary right now? You're like, this went dark real quick, Corey. I did not see that coming. But think about it. Talking about the, men, the people that are around you. Are you even in community is the first question. The second question is, what would that community say? Turns out we're always, always in community. So what would they say? Would they say, like, he's a faithful man. This man is full of the, he's full of the Holy Spirit. He's got the ghost all up in him. And he shares the gospel. He's living on mission. He's generous with his wife if he's married. Or he's generous and gracious with his kids if he has kids. Or, hey, even when he's not, he admits failure. Like, he's a work in progress. But the dude loves Jesus, right? When it talks about Barnabas, what it says is that he's a man of high reputation. He's a humble man. And he's full of the Holy Spirit and he's full of faith. And he's an encourager. Men, with the people around you, women and men alike, look at you and say, that man's an encourager. Like when I'm around him, he, he just instills Christ in me. That's what the word encourage means. It means literally to place courage in someone. Like when I'm around him, I feel better about myself. When I'm around him, Jesus is magnified. Whenever I'm around him, like you can tell that the spirit is in the room with this man. Likewise, women, as you're already doing, what would they say about you? Heaven forbid they have to write your obituary, be nicer to you, right? But, but think about it. Man, she's a godly woman. She's a fierce woman. She got Proverbs 31, not just as a wrist tattoo, but it's all over her life. 
this woman, right? She loves the Lord. She's faithful. She's fierce. She's submissive to Jesus. She's listening to this. She's a prayerful woman. What would they say? Or would they say, I don't know. We didn't really know her. She put her kids on a pedestal and spent all of her time with them. We never really got to know her. She argued a lot. She was divisive. Her husband was always the butt of a joke. What would they say about you? Perhaps you're sitting here now and you're like, you don't really know your role in community or understand a biblical role for what it means to be in community. And so your mindset is, I don't really care what people think about me. Well, let me tell you what, as a Christian, you can't have that mindset because you represent someone bigger than you, someone far greater than you, right? And so it does matter what people see and what people think about when they look at us because we represent Christ. And so if I imagine me as your pastor and I live a life where I'm not gracious to my wife, I'm not gracious to my kids as a representation of Jesus, how do you begin to view Jesus? Well, he must not love the bride. He must not be gracious. He must not be kind. And that's the same for you. You don't be a pastor. You just be a professing Christian. And so it matters. The reputation does matter. Your identity is ultimately rooted in Christ, which means then you represent Christ. Everywhere that you go, whether you speak about him or not, listen to me now, you're making disciples in community. So if you roll up in the workplace and you don't talk about Jesus, you're telling them what you believe about Jesus. Also, at the same time, if you roll up in the workplace and you beat them with Jesus, you're also telling them what you believe about Jesus, right? And so it matters what people think about you. For Barnabas, they thought he was a man of high reputation and a humble man, an encouraging man, a man that is full of the Holy Spirit, a very generous man who contributed to the mission of God. I pray that that would be our reputation as a church. Amen. And so what's happening here is this man named Barnabas, right? He rolls up in Antioch and the scripture says it is the the grace that leads him to gladness. And the grace that he sees is a community of people like learning how to be a community of people. They once went, we're talking like months earlier, highly segregated, very dense, highly affluent, but very segregated. And now you have this hodgepodge of individuals that have come together from all over the globe now that are responding to the gospel. And if you're like, man, I don't know, I just don't think about it like this. And I'm going to just say it like this and you send me an email, whatever later, it's fine. And so this goes both ways, but I'm going to start this way because it's more fitting for Antioch. Like picture with me the most, I'm going to say it like this, the most progressive, the most liberal, the most amoral individual that you could possibly imagine in your life. Don't say their names out loud, heaven forbid, but picture that in your mind. And when I mean that, it's not a politi- that's not a political thing. I know I mentioned that with Nehemiah. This is not. This is, just picture that. There's no view for sanctity of life. There is no formal understanding or care even for the doctrine of marriage or what marriage might look like. There's literally completely amoral. Anything goes sexually and anything goes as a form of worship. Okay. This is the person that we're talking about. You guys tracking with me now take that one single individual and times them by 25. This is your small group. Now this is your missional community. Now this is who Barnabas would have been engaging. This is what, that's what Antioch would have been like. Okay. Now, just to be clear, a hard, hard hidden far right individual can be just as difficult and tough to crack with the gospel. Amen. And so it's not a political thing. It's just the reality of the situation here. So that's who Barnabas would have been sent into to encourage. And we're talking about like copious amounts of people coming to faith. And this is what these small, these missional communities would have looked like. They would have been set up in Antioch. And that's literally what the church would have 
looked like, very similar to ours, a similar culture to ours, no doubt. And so Barnabas, the encourager, the grace that he sees, listen now, this is convicting if you listen, the grace that he sees is those individuals, those people, right, those individuals hearing the gospel, responding to the gospel, and literally bridging worship together and learning, like, here how, here's how Jesus is good for me. In a culture that is written with 40,000 different many little saviors that man has spoken to existence. He's saying, no, this is, not, this is why the fertility God doesn't work for you. And this is why the agricultural God isn't working. The sun God's not providing and the rain God's. All these little 40,000 gods they would have created with their mouths. These men, they come in. First, these Jewish men. Now, Barnabas, he comes in. And he says, hey, you have a lot of saviors, but you don't have a Lord. There's only one Lord, and his name is Jesus. Could you imagine preaching that? Oh, some of you would be like, that's my nightmare. That is the worst place in the world. I don't even like people. Well, as John Ryan said, that's not a personality issue. That's a Jesus issue last week. That's part of the sermon I heard. Could you imagine? I mean, that's what it would have been like for Barnabas, the encourager. And listen, he looks at those people, some of you couldn't even stand to be in the room with, and he goes, there's a grace of God right there. And it says it brought him gladness. Like he wasn't like, oh, Tuesday night MC, I just happened to get my hair cut. I mean, I don't know, Tuesday falls the same time every week, but this is the night, you know? He's like, no, this, there's a gladness that came for this man. As he saw the gospel begin to, do just penetrate and then permeate throughout a people group, people groups, plural. There was a gladness that came to him. And so Barnabas, this encourager comes in. He says, it's not about me, it's about them. What happens, though, in our sin, especially as we talked about two weeks ago in the light of the idol of self-preservation, is we don't come in like Barnabas and say, how can I encourage? Who can I celebrate? Where do I see the grace of God moving? We come in here and go, we go, but what can the church do for me? There's a difference between contribution and consumerism. That's an idol of consumerism right there. Self-preservation goes, I'm not going to step outside of my comfort zone. I don't want to get in. I don't want to deal with that community. I don't know how to speak the gospel. I don't want to do that. Well, at the moment, then, who's all that about? Well, that's about me. That's no different than me getting up and on an Easter Sunday and 12 people in the room. Who do I make it about? I made it about me. Right? We're not so different, are we? But the reality is, like, still on the first point here, keep in mind. Gospel faithfulness is about, I mean, gospel faithfulness in community. As I was singing worship a moment, and the thought that came to mind is this. There is no such thing as a privatized faith and a resurrected Jesus. There's no such thing as that. There's a Western ideology behind that lie, but there's not a gospel reality behind that lie. There's no such thing as a privatized faith faith and a resurrected Jesus Christ. Christianity is communal by design. Like we literally say that we serve a Trinitarian God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, three who's, one what, we call him God, right? By design, we serve a Trinitarian God, a God that exists in totality, in community, see us Lewis calls the Trinity the great and beautiful dance, if you've ever read any of his stuff. And he says that uh, the Trinity is constantly the Father ushering the Son, and the Son ushering the Spirit, and the Spirit ushering the Father, and the Father ushering the Son to center stage. He wants to put the spotlight on them. They're constantly submitting to one another, constantly leading one another. That's kind of what the Trinity looks like. Hardest doctrine to wrap our minds around, but it makes sense the way he says it. Think about like what your life would look like, church family. Church family, think about what your life would look like in the workplace if you had that sort of Trinitarian mindset. 
If you're like, no, the, the job isn't about me, the promotion's not about me, the school, I don't know, project's not about me, but rather, like, I'm gonna spend my life because of what Christ has modeled, not from a legalistic heart, and I'm just gonna usher people to center stage around me because this is what God has modeled for me. Like the Father sends the Son, the Son sends the Spirit, the Spirit has sent who? Well, he sent me. And so it's now my responsibility to then help create and establish community around me. That's why we do missional community. It's not just a program that we do. It kind of forces you into a position to say, do I believe the gospel or not? And let me tell you what, you walk out some genuine community, you're going to ask that question a lot throughout the day, yeah? Because people are hard, especially Christians, amen? Christianity by design is communal. It is by design that. I mean, could you imagine any relationship? Would any relationship be worth pursuing if you're constantly asking the question, what's in it for me? Right? I got my wife sitting up here in the front row. Imagine she's like, I need you to do the dishes. And I was like, what's in it for me? <laughs> could you just imagine? She's like, I wish you would, you know? Like, I'll show what's in it. Just a picture, but picture any relationship. You don't know, be married. Think about any relationship, any friendship, any co-working relationship, any relationship. If all you do is show up constantly and you ask the question, hey, what's in it for me? What would that relationship look like for you? I mean, nobody would want to be around you. Let's take it and implant it on Sunday gathering. Let's think about this. Sunday gathering is an hour and a half if I stick to time. Imagine your marriage or some close relationship like that, and you're like, hey, I just don't have time for you. The other six hours and six days and 23 and a half hours. I'll give you an hour and a half of my time. Now what does my relationship with my wife look like? What does your relationship with your kids look like? With your people you would call friends? Would you call it family or no? no? Would it seem like enough for you or no? So then why do we settle for that here? Stop settling for stuff. We need, we need community with one another because it's what Christ models. It's also what Christ died for. Last point I think I'll make on that. Right? People will come in and say, oh, I love the church, or I love Jesus, but I don't love the church. I said last service. It's like you tell me you love me, but you don't like my wife. I'm gonna lay some holy hands on you, dude. <laughs> right? You know, right? So picture it. Now just think about it realistically. Someone comes up to you, if you are married in the room, and say, man, I really, I really like you, but I don't really know about your spouse. You're like, this ain't a relationship anymore because you don't get one without the other one. Right? And so it is, Jesus died for the bride of Christ. That's us. Not so that we, so we would do this, yes and amen. Praise God for what happens during this time. But not so that we would settle. Don't ever settle, not in marriage or in your walk with Jesus. Gospel faithfulness in conversation. Remain faithful to the gospel in community, which means then you have to remain faithful to the gospel in conversation. 11, um, 23 through 26 is what we'll read. I'll talk about some of it. I only have 10 minutes. 23 says this. When he came, so I'm Barnabas, when Barnabas came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he what? What's that say? Exhorted, right? So you say exhorted. Is that what it says? All right, cool. Somebody say exhorted. There she is. Then uh, exhorted them uh, all, listen, exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, okay? For he was a good man, here it is, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, praise God. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So people start coming to faith. So Barnabas went to Tarsus, it's about 150 miles away, looked for Saul, he might know him by the name of Paul. Uh, and when he had found him, he brought him back to Antioch, brought him to Antioch, sorry. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, we'll hit this lastly, but in, in, and in Antioch, the disciples were first called uh, Christians. 
And so report goes back to Jerusalem. Keep in mind, those are the individuals that didn't even want to go to Antioch to begin with. And they're like, oh, we got to send our brother Barnabas. Barnabas is an encouraging man, full of the Holy Spirit, full of faith. We're going to send Barnabas. Barnabas then comes to Antioch and begins to exhort them to remain faithful with steadfast purpose. That's what the text says. He exhorted them to remain faithful with steadfast purpose. Now, we've talked about this word before, specifically as we looked at the book of Hebrews together. To nerd out on you. Can I just nerd? Can I be a nerd for a minute for you? All right, cool. Perikaleo is the word that's used there. Uh, for exhortation or to exhort. We don't actually have a word in the English to give this the depth that it needs or that it deserves in the Greek, but we do what we can. And so parakaleo, kind of make it fun for you, uh, means to exhort or to counsel loudly. And so para means together. It means we have to do it together. Kaleo literally means uh, to yell. So it means to yell together or to counsel together loudly. And to do so, the, uh, the assumption is that you do so in the midst of community, that you can't properly have parakaleo yelling at one another, right, without another there. There has to be uh, someone who's there in this conversation. So like my wife and I, right, we don't argue, we just counsel loudly. Anybody else just counsel loudly this last week, right? The kids are like, why are y'all fighting? We're like, we ain't fighting. It's called counseling. Shut up. And so (laughs) mom and dad are fighting. No, we're not. We're counseling loudly each other. Okay. So you can't experience, listen, you cannot experience true parakaleo or true exhortation by yourself. You go, I talk to myself all the time. We know we're well aware. But at the same time, now the, the spirit can come in and use the word to bring conviction, yes and amen. But what this is talking about is it's much different, it's much more intense, like it's much more deep, and it requires you have another. Why? Because Christianity is by design communal, which means then we have to have conversation. There's an expectation here that exhortation or the counseling or the parakaleo would happen in the midst of community, which then means also you have to use your words. And so there, again, there is no privatized faith in a resurrected Jesus. And so that means we can't look at other individuals and go, oh, that's none of my business. Look at me. It's your business, right? You can't, oh, I just want to stay out of that. If you see someone not walking like Christ, don't be a turd, but you get to go up and you get to go, hey, brother, hey, sister, let me just <laughs> yell at you for a minute and tell you, you don't look like Christ. Here are the ways I'm seeing you're not looking like Christ. Here's how Christ is better for you, which means you actually have to use your mouth. What you don't need to do is see a situation over here and then go tell someone else about it and expect them to follow up with it. Oh my gosh, you know how many times, you already know how many times people come to me and you're like, hey pastor, you know, I just, I got this situation and it's about someone else. What do I say to them every time? You need to go talk to them. They're like, what do we pay you for? I'm like, to tell you uh, biblically, you need to go talk to them. That's what you need to go do. Why? Because you need to use your mouth. There's a real reality. It sounds kind of juvenile to say as a point, but it's a real reality. More often than not, Christians run from the conversation instead of running to the conversation. Well, who's in, who's in a mind at that moment? Well, that's the idol of self-preservation, isn't it? To go, oh, what are they gonna think about me? What are they gonna say? I don't know exactly what to say in this situation. It discounts the power of the gospel, discounts the movement of the Holy Spirit, discounts the reality there's a living, sovereign God that might wanna use you for a time such as this. It also discounts the importance of community, actually coming around and having this conversation uh, with each other. And so Barnabas counseled them. He encouraged them. And I said earlier, but to use that word even more appropriately, he instills courage in them. Again, I wish I was a better communicator for you today in, in general. But like he would, have been, he would have had to step into this conversation with the type of figure that we talked about just a moment ago. Listen, across multiple ethnicities, 
crazy diverse situation. And then as a Jewish man, literally having to speak the gospel into situations he could never even fathom in his life until this moment. I mean, Jews didn't go and associate with other different ethnicities. There was no such thing as diversity really among the Jews. I mean, different nations, sure, that are Jewish, but there wasn't like this level of diversity. And so whenever they call Barnabas to be the encourager, what he does is he goes and he instills courage in these women and in these men in the most dirty, foul place you could possibly imagine on earth at the moment. And he tells them what? Remain faithful with steadfast purpose. What does he call them to? Gospel faithfulness. Gospel fables in the midst of conversation. Now you have this hodgepodge, crazy collage of multiple ethnicities coming together. And there's only one thing that unites them. And it's the gospel. Like before this moment in time, this is why it's so important. Before this moment in time, there was like, you were were, uh, distinguished by your region. So your religion was about your region. Your words were about your speech. Language was about your region. What you wore was about your region. Everything was about your region. Everything you did told of the region that you came from. And this is the first time, again, in human history where the gospel comes in and permeates. And there's no longer this one variable that can distinguish you from this, re- uh, this region or this region over here. But rather, the gospel, as proclaimed by the mouth of the saints, is the thing that bridges the gap. And let me encourage you here today, dude. We need this sort of paracaleo. Like we need people to step up in our business a little bit. And we do a lot with story by God's grace. We have a very transparent church, praise God. There's a lot of your business out there floating around, right? Willfully, only the gospel does that. But you have to be willing to allow the gospel to speak into it, right? As we were, um, as I was preparing this, I'm not gonna, don't worry, I'm not gonna sing for you. But I was thinking about Come Thou Fount, the hymn, the long time hymn, right, that we sing not going to be on the screen, and I'm not going to sing it. But, oh, grace, how great a, de- a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. This is like he's saying, I need to regularly be reminded of the grace that you have given to me. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wondering heart to thee. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. We are prone to wonder, church family. Let's not act like we got it all together in his house. We most certainly do not, amen? Prone to leave the God we love, yeah? Which then means as long as the day ends in Y, we need exhortation. We need parakaleo. We need community to come around, not, just, not to just beat us over the head with it, but to sit with us and actually counsel, yell at us a little bit. It kind of feels good to yell at somebody a little bit, doesn't it? Uh, This last week, I did yell at Josiah. He's my nine-year-old, for those of you who don't know me. Um, I had a real real unhealthy moment, we'll say, (laughs) with him in the drop-off line. Anybody have drop-off lines? Yeah, man, they're like preparing you for the need for Jesus for the day, I think. (laughs) Through this drop-off line, Josiah's science project starts to fall apart. He's just got these little pebbles on there that look like water, piranha thing we're working on together. Piranha thing that Andrew and I did for him. And... um, (laughs) So Josiah freaks out in the pickup, in the drop-off line, technically. And so then naturally, that's contagious, so I start freaking out. I don't know where he gets his emotional side. No clue where that comes from. And so I'm like, bro, we've got to go. 
And he's like, but it's fine. I just need a minute. I'm like, you don't have a freaking minute. We have 15 cars behind us in the pickup line. We're already the family that like hugs everyone and kisses them. People behind us like silently honking the horn and get the heck out of here. Right. I'm like yelling at my son in the drop off line. Genuinely speaking, I'm like, you don't have a minute. There's just dad looking at me like, you don't freaking know me, bro. Don't look at me like that. And so like, it's just a total moment. Anybody ever had this moment? I know I'm not alone here. Yeah. And then you feel like a total piece of trash all day. And you're like, oh my gosh, I know better. And you start you start shooting all over yourself a little bit, right? Like, I should have done this. I should have done that. I just stepped in some should, you know? And so I feel like should. And so, um, and then as I like sat with the Lord like that day though, he was like, you don't need to ask for forgiveness. Like you, you do, of course, but you need to model repentance for your son. I'm like, oh, it's even harder. So Josiah gets in the car, you know? And I was like, hey buddy, sorry about earlier. He's like, oh, dad, I already forgot about it. And I'm still all in my feels. So I'm like, yeah, it's because I'm such a terrible dad. I treat like poo all the time, probably. And so we get home, and I sit down with Josiah and talk to him. And, and I say to him, hey, and this is the difference. There's confession, repentance. I did confess. Hey, bro, um, I'm sorry that I yelled at you. I should not yell at you. That's a confession. I said, in the moment, though, the reason I yelled at you is because I chose, like, the instant feeling that your dad gets of that release. I chose anger over choosing the grace and the mercy that my father has given me in Jesus. I didn't model being a good daddy to you. I'm sorry. And he's like, I forgive you. It's like, I get it. That just feels worse now, as a matter of fact. <laughs> and, so, <clears throat> and so we're sitting there together and he goes, he goes, but dad, doesn't it just feel good to let it all out? And I was like, that's not helpful. But yes, it does feel very good. So let it all out. And then I said, and then you kind of feel like a turd because you just dumped all over someone. And he's like, oh, yeah, definitely. Listen, that's a picture of Paragaleo. It only happens in conversation in the midst of community. That's the point that I'm making. And it doesn't have to be some long, drawn-out thing. Hey, buddy, I chose anger instead of choosing grace. God has modeled grace towards me in Christ. That's the gospel. Amen? It doesn't have to be some big thing. Listen, we need to be able to sit with one another, call each other to the mat, and love each other well with the gospel at the center of that thing, the story of God at the center. Last point is this, gospel faithfulness as Christians. I ran over a little bit, sorry. Gospel faithfulness as Christians. We'll just read this last line if it's up, and then I'll, I'll sum it up for you. Uh, and in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. That's the last line of the text that I wanna hit for us. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Uh, there's a few things here that happen uh, as we move into verse 30, so I'll give them to you, um, and then we're going to camp out just as we hit communion with them, and in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. There's three things that happens. The first thing is this. We didn't read it. Uh, Jess read it over us. Uh, a prophet comes, and that's very subtle, but I think it's very important in light of the conversation, uh, because what you see in this prophet coming to Antioch is not just the, God, the call for the Christians to remain faithful. It's actually a picture of God's faithfulness to the Christian. And so what I mean by that and where I get that from is there's 40,000 different saviors that men have created, that men have spoken to existence, 40,000 different false gods, false idols that men have tried to speak. And then now for the first time in the life of Antioch, there's a God who speaks through man. Like it's not some man showing up saying, hey, here's the God of fertility, here's the God of rain, here's the God of land. He goes, no, God sends humanity in and says, hey, there's a famine coming in the time of Claudius. It's going to come. And I love it because everything about Antioch, like there's what's called historicity there. There's historical accuracy there. You can flip. You don't have to be a believer in the room. You can be a skeptic as they come. You're welcome here. And you're also welcome to go thumb through the history pages and you go, my, 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 that is true of Antioch. 
Like Antioch did come to faith. And that's the first time this segregation began to dissipate in culture. And also there was a famine in the land during the time of Claudius. Now it's, you can be a skeptic, but it's hard to battle science when science and Bible match up, isn't it? And so there's this reality where like God loves his people. He saved them spiritually. And now he steps in physically and goes, hey, by the way, there is a famine that is coming. Why would he do that? Oh, because it forces conversation and it forces you to be a community because the only way they're surviving during that time is if they're sharing their needs with one another and they're circling the wagons together and providing for other people. And then the second thing that they do is they actually provide for other people and they provide for these once Jewish Christians that live in Jerusalem that didn't want to go to Antioch to begin with. These people had ostracized Antioch and who is it that Antioch serves? It says in there, if we were to read it or have just read it again, it says they sent financial relief to the Jews in Jerusalem. Listen, that's the very people that left them to their own demise. The only reason the Jewish Christian went there is because they were forced to go to Antioch. Listen to me. Only the gospel can lead you to love your enemies. Only genuine conversation with each other can lead you to love your enemies like that. Only genuine gospel-centered community can lead to that sort of parakaleo, that sort of encouragement, that sort of counseling, that sort of instilling courage into you to be able to go and do that, to go, I have to believe the gospel so much now because this person who hated me, that's who's going to get my finances right now. Like only the gospel can do that to you. And listen to me now, last thing here then. And they were called Christians is what it says. Listen, out of the 40,000 different false gods that existed in Antioch, they had 40,000 to pick from. Think about that. 40,000 different false gods. It was these once pagan non-believers. And they look at these Jewish Christians and they say, you're like Jesus. You're like Christ. We haven't met him but we've heard the story. He's the only one that came and said, I come not only for the Gentile, but also for the pagan, also for the ethne, also for the nations. There is literally not another God in the history of humanity that has come to earth, put on flesh, dwelt among humanity and said, I'm not just here for my people, but I'm here for your people too. And my gospel is enough for you. Like historically speaking, this had never happened. There was no such thing as cross-cultural worship until the gospel came into Antioch. And now we still feel the effects of that today. Much of what you hold valuable as a Christian and as an American is birthed out of the gospel. I would probably say all of it. Do you care about hospitality? That wasn't in the worldview then until this moment. Do you care about hospitals, caring for the poor, sanctity of life, high value of marriage, Do you care about social justice for crying out loud? It's birthed strictly out of Christian doctrine and not just the knowledge of it, but listen, acting on it. So what happened is the people in Antioch, I'm five minutes over. What happens is the people in Antioch, they don't just experience parakaleo, church family, they become it. They literally become the embodiment of Christ Jesus to the people that are around them. Listen, and I think that we can do the same thing in the Metro East and beyond. If we remain faithful to the gospel, faithful to community, and faithful to living on mission, not just for the first 10 years. We're not showing up and you're saying, oh, we must have succeeded. We must have arrived. No, no. More people just means more opportunities to blow holes in the gates of hell. That's what we're going to do in the next 10 years. Let's stand up and take communion.
you're new to Ice, we uh, take communion together every week. And we do it as a, just as a family. <clears throat> yeah, this is not a, like a religious moment for us. Um, we call this a redemptive moment. And what I mean by that is this is just another opportunity for today uh, to be able to share the gospel with you. If our liturgy has failed us, our songs have failed, and if I failed in preaching, then communion will always uh, hold us strong in the gospel. And uh, what that means, and if you've never maybe taken communion before, is as you come forward, uh, you simply see bread, which represents Christ's body. It was broken for you uh, in your place uh, as your substitute. Christ died the death you deserve because of sin. He invites you to experience life with him. Uh, You also see the cup, which represents Christ's blood that was spilled in your place uh, as your substitute. So you don't have to metaphorically beat yourself down whenever you fail to walk out uh, being a solid Christian. Rather, you can, you can fall into grace and mercy and it will be enough to sustain you. And so as we get into communion then, it's also a good reminder uh, that Jesus sought those that were unseekable. Jesus sought those that were considered unrighteous. God. Jesus sought those that were considered sinners. Uh, to be completely frank, Jesus came to save the very people that were gonna kill him. I mean, that's the truth of the gospel. He came to save the religious and the religious put him on a cross and killed him, yeah? And so Antioch didn't model anything, even in giving to Jerusalem that had not first been modeled for them. Uh, and in the same token today, God has not asked you to respond in any way that he himself would not first model responding for you, to save you and to redeem you. And so communion is an opportunity to simply ask the question that I think you had to ask to go into Antioch, Antioch which is, man, where have I segregated my life? Not just like ethnic ethnically or in light of ethnicity or race, but like just in general, where have I put walls up around my life where I won't allow people in and I need the gospel to come in and knock that, knock those suckers down. Because we all have areas of our lives that we feel like are irredeemable. Uh, But turns out the gospel redeems, amen? And so as you're standing there before you come forward, don't worry about people leaving, let let them stand in the road if you need to take a minute to pray. Um, And just ask God that, like where do I have these walls so high, so built up around that I feel like no one can come in. Pericaleo cannot happen. Community's not enough. I don't even want to deal with the conversation, let alone start the conversation. Uh, and then just allow the Holy Spirit to come in and, and speak the gospel into your life. And then model confession and repentance. God, I'm confessing this area. I need to repent. I'm choosing this over choosing something that you've uh, given me. And 1 Corinthians says this, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, listen here, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. I do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. For those of you that are in Christ, that are professing Christians, the table is open for you. Come forward when you're ready.